how good it is to be Cross of Grace Church, how good it is to be welcoming you if you're a guest. We have the privilege of celebrating the greatest good thing that ever was and ever will be, that is Christ and his gospel this morning. So I'm grateful uh, that I get to celebrate together with you. My name is Jeff Schleter, and if you don't know me, I'd love to meet you after the service. It's my joy to serve as a member of the pastoral team here at Cross of Grace and to open up God's word with you today. Opening up God's word in what is our final morning in the gospel of Mark. After has it a year, 14 months, 12 months, a long time, <laughs> 40 plus sermons following the story of Jesus, asking the question, who is Jesus? It all comes to an end in a manner of speaking <laughs> today. So please turn in your Bibles, your devices, your Bible app of choice, the Bible that's on the floor, underneath the chair, toward the aisle, whichever you can grab, whatever you have, to Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 42. Mark 15, beginning in verse 42, and today we're going all the way to the end of the book in chapter 16, verse 8. We'll be reading from the ESV, that is the English Standard Version this morning, as we all together learn how to read God's Word together. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Evangelio de Marcos, capítulo 15, versículo 42, a capítulo 16, versículo 8. La Resurrección. Now, some of you may already have questions. <laughs> you may be wondering why I said 16.8 and not 16.20 when I named our text. You may have additional verses in your Bible or see a big footnote at the bottom of the page about them. My Bible says, and yours might say as well, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16. 9 through 20. Anybody see that looking down at the page in your Bible? And so at the top, let me say this to help us not be stumbled over this. At the top, we're not going to read verses 9 through 20 today. We're not going to read them or treat them as part of our sermon text. Why? Well, because, and get ready for this, I believe there's something in your Bible that shouldn't be in your Bible. Ooh. Is anyone disconcerted? Is anyone surprised, stumbled, concerned? <laughs> you shouldn't be this morning if you're hearing this. You shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. Strangely enough, though it might seem odd or confusing or something new to us that somehow these verses snuck in there, I believe today that what these verses do represent, and we'll get to that, actually should come as an encouragement to us. And what that is, we'll get to it later, but I just want to put that in front of you at the outset so that there's no confusion about it. Our sermon text is verse 42 of chapter 15 through 16, verse 8. We believe and have confidence that these words are God's very words to us. The words that were in the original manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. And we'll begin our time together this morning by reading them. And as we do, picking up with verse 42, we've come to what is the beginning of the end of the Gospel of Mark. Putting ourselves back in the scene. It's nearly sunset on Friday afternoon, and Jesus' body hangs lifeless upon the cross. But where will his story end? Let's find out, beginning in verse 40, 42. Mark writes, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, 
bought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Church, these are God's words to us. We come now and pray for God's help. Oh, Father, we come to you now and we seek your help once again and one last time in this gospel of Mark, that we might, through these words, see your Son, that you would fill us with your Spirit, that the eyes of our hearts might lay hold of him by by faith and see this Jesus crucified but now risen and Lord Jesus our risen king who lives and dwells among us would you by your spirit speak to us today through your word preaching the gospel once more would you do this and take what for us is a familiar story a story that we know the ending to before it's began and would you impress it upon us in such a way that it changes us. Your story impressed upon our story that we would not be the same. Help us to receive this gospel. Help us to respond to this gospel. Help us to see you afresh today. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, on this Lord's Day, we have just read the account of the very first Lord's Day. In minutes, we just moved along with Mark through the waning hours of that Good Friday evening, endured that holy and silent Saturday, and emerged on the other side to celebrate what was the very first Easter Sunday. (laughs) What a journey. And celebrate, we should, but this morning, not without first grasping the drama of this text, as we've been wont to do in the Gospel of Mark. And so let's begin at the beginning and lay hold of that drama, that tension, what's really happening here as best we can. And we read just now in chapter 15, verses 42 through 47, we read and we took in the incredible reality that at the outset, at the beginning, the Son of God is dead. The Son of God is dead. He has been crucified for us and is now buried in another man's tomb. Truly, really, without a doubt, 100% dead. That's where we find Jesus at the beginning of the story today. He is apparently conquered. His disciples are gone and heartbroken. Whatever hope was had in Jesus is now seemingly dashed. But into this drama, into this despair, into this seeming ending, we are freshly reminded today that this is not the end of his story. This is not the end of his story. And listen, because it's not the end of his story, there is profound, life-altering, reality-reshaping impact to be had upon our story as well. So. What's the conclusion of the story? What's the conclusion in the Gospel of Mark? As Mark here, in these verses that we've just read, places his finishing touches upon what is his written portrait of Jesus. 
and takes a, a, a step back to take it all in, what does he want us to see as we look with him? He wants us to see this, and it's simple, but we can't miss it. He wants us to see that Jesus is the crucified and risen king. Crucified and risen. If we don't have both halves of that statement, we have no gospel. Crucified plus risen equals gospel for us today. It equals hope of new life for us today. We need to see both of these realities come together, the end of his story, such that our stories would be changed. So that's it. Don't miss it this morning. The same one who was crucified now lives. And because this is his story's ending, it secures for us our story's new beginning. Not just wishful thinking, not just uh, something to make ourselves feel better, but true new beginning, true life where there is no life, true hope in the face of hopelessness. The real hope of new life to all who would receive this crucified and risen Christ. And so Mark has for us today, as we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, what we ought to see and to believe and to lay hold of such that we would enter into a new reality, a new mission, a new story to live in, and a new story to live and give our lives to tell. So, for the final time in Mark, let's enter into that story together, receiving his fullest and final answer to the burning question we've been asking all along, which is, who is Jesus and what has he done? Journeying with him from Friday evening to Sunday morning in order to behold his finished portrait of Jesus. And along the way, as we do so, we're going to turn our eyes to three final sights together. The first is that the king is dead and buried. The king is dead and buried, verses 42 through 47 of chapter 15. Second, the king is alive. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. And finally, we have the king is dead and buried. The king is alive. Point number three, don't keep it to yourself. Chapter 16, verse 8. Those are the three points, three sights we'll set our attention upon this morning as we journey with Mark to the end of his gospel. And as we do so, first, we behold point number one, that the king is dead and buried. And the point of these verses for us in what we see in 42 through 47, it's pretty simple, though there's lots we could unpack and lots we could say, but it's pretty simple. What do these verses tell us? They tell us of the reality and the finality of Jesus' death. In other words, he's really dead, okay? (laughs) That's what verses 42 through 47 are all about. Jesus is really dead. And it's important we grab hold of that. It's going to come into play later. But listen, it's Friday evening, and the Son of God is dead. As we heard last time in Mark, the curtain in the temple, it has been torn. The centurion has cried out, and the women watched it all go down from a distance. Jesus' body is hanging lifeless upon a Roman cross. His soul has gone down to the place of the dead, and now his body will follow suit as it is to be laid in the tomb. But the beginning of the Sabbath observance is fast approaching, where it will go from Friday at uh, sunset to becoming the Sabbath day when the sun goes down. And so there's not much time left to have him buried before it's too late, before the Jewish people cannot do any more work that day. The sun is about to set on this central day in all of history where the Son of God has been crucified for our sins and lest he be left upon the cross in disgrace and thrown into a mass grave for criminals by the Romans whenever they got around to doing that. He's got to be removed from the cross and properly buried. And so what we see here is that over the next three hours, from 3 p.m. or so to 6 p.m. on that Good Friday, a surprising friend of Jesus emerges on the scene and he honors the one that is called Christ and King, by laying his body to rest. This one, this Jesus, upon whom many had cast their hopes, is laid, in this first set of verses here, in a cavernous tomb. Dead and buried, just like any 
other man. But will his experience of death go the same way as all other men? Well, let's find out together as we enter into this scene in verses 42 through 43. We see here at the outset of the scene that evening is fast approaching and the Sabbath will begin at sundown. And so in the intervening hours after the death of Jesus, his body is obtained from the Romans and laid in another man's tomb. And we meet this other man, this surprising friend. He's one called Joseph of Arimathea. We meet him in verse 43. And what's striking about him is that he is a member of the Sanhedrin, the council, the judicial body who had just before, just prior, just days before, condemned Jesus to death, turned him over to the Romans, and brought about this whole predicament. He is a member of this council that has just condemned Jesus, who turns out to be a believer in Jesus. He Mark says, was awaiting the coming of the kingdom of God, and he believed that Jesus was bringing it in, this kingdom. And in this moment, his privately held faith in Christ, it goes public. As he musters up the courage to approach Pilate, the Roman governor who has just put Jesus to death as an enemy of the state, (laughs) he goes to Pilate to request his body at great personal risk to himself to honor his Lord, to honor his friend, to honor the one on whom he believed the hopes of his people rested. He risks his safety and his reputation to go do this, and he requests the body of Jesus from Pontius Pilate. And verse 44 tells us that Pilate is taken aback. He's surprised by his request. Why is that? Because he's surprised that Christ is already dead. He's been on the cross only for six hours, and already he is, he's dead. And so Mark relays that the governor, being surprised to hear about his death coming so soon, people could hang on the cross for days. He goes to request a report from the centurion. And I think we have good reason to believe that the centurion he speaks to here is the same one who sat at the foot of the cross, who beheld Jesus hanging there and saw him utter with a loud cry and breathe his last. And then in that moment, he said, surely this man is the son of God. He saw him Give up his life and lay it down. This same centurion is brought in, most likely. And Pilate says, hey, has he really, the one called the king of the Jews, has he passed? And he says, yes. He is dead. He's given up his life. And so Mark is showing us yet again through this interaction that the death of Christ was no ordinary human death because it would have taken days. It would have taken quite a long time for any other man to die, but something's happened in the death of Christ, which isn't any ordinary passing. He gave up his life after fulfilling God's plan. And so, when the reality of his death is confirmed for Pontius Pilate, verses 45 through 47 tell us that he granted the corpse to Joseph. And this is striking language that Mark is using here. He doesn't just say the body of Jesus. He uses a different Greek word to say the corpse of Jesus. Making very clear for us, trying to take it in and wrap our minds around it, that as we sang earlier, the prince and the king of life is now a corpse to be handled and taken and removed from the cross by men. Jesus didn't just pass out. (laughs) He hasn't just fainted. He is a corpse. And Pilate grants that corpse, that truly dead man, over to Joseph to be taken and to be buried. Jesus, and it's important we we grab a hold of this, he's not asleep, (laughs) he's not unconscious, he's not on death's door, hanging on by a thread here. But he is confirmed first to be deceased by a professional Roman executioner, the centurion. And then he's brought to Joseph and Pilate and one and two more witnesses come on to say, this Jesus is dead. His death is confirmed by three witnesses here. Truly, really, without a doubt, he has given his life for us. And so Joseph is granted the body and he goes to prepare the body of Christ preparing him for burial by going to do the work. And just imagine this. It's hard to take in. By removing his body from the cross, likely with men and servants at his side to help him out, but they go and they take down Christ from the cross. They wrap his body in a linen shroud, the body that has been bloodied and beaten and broken, and they bring it to the earth. They wrap him in that new shroud, 
and they lay him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock in a spot that had not yet been used, and they seal it with a stone so that nothing and no one, the idea would be, would get in or out of this place. And all the while this is going on, verse 47 tells us that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, they were watching. They saw where he was laid. Those same women that we met last time in chapter 15 who watched his death from a distance now see him buried in the tomb. Again, more witnesses, witnesses upon witnesses that this Christ has given his life and has been laid in the tomb for us and for our salvation. And before we move on to what happens next in the story, and we all do know, we've all already read what happens next. He's laid in the tomb, Joseph's own family tomb. You know, don't worry, Joseph. He won't need it for long. <laughs> we know this, but before we pass on to the climax of the narrative here, it's important that we stop here to take this in, that Jesus has now been laid in the tomb. He's laid in the grave. The burial of Jesus is something that is not just something we skip over. It's just a fact of history and we move on from it. It's significant for us, okay? We reflect upon the reality that Jesus, he was truly dead and buried in order, as Hebrews says, to taste death. To taste death in its fullness, with all its sting, with all its humiliation, for all he came to redeem. He didn't just appear to be dead on Friday and then wake up on Sunday, but he was really dead. Really dead, such that he could really bring new life. Not just improved life, not resuscitated life to those who would receive him, but true death. Coming to the ending of endings, such that there might be a real, new, radical, new beginning. And so Jesus is laid in the tomb. He's laid in this garden tomb, receiving the full outcome of the promise made to Adam back in that first garden, that in the day when you eat of the, of the tree, surely you will die. Now here is Jesus, surely he is dead. Deceased, laid in the tomb, laid in the grave. And through Adam, the death which had come and entered into the world through his sin, which has infected all of his offspring, all those who have come before us and will affect us one day, Jesus goes to take on this death. That death that came into the world through Adam was kind of the undeniable sign that we were sinners. Death reigned in the world and it showed that all were under sin, all were under its curse, all were under its power and its penalty. And Jesus goes, having absorbed the wrath toward sin upon the cross, now receiving that sign of death, identifying with us. Jesus in this, he has gone as low now as he can go. Stepping into our place, receiving the wage of sin that was promised to Adam and is due to each and every one of us. And he goes and is buried like all the rest of us. And in this, we see his burial. It's yet another living illustration of his saving work. For just as he exchanged places with Barabbas and he bore that criminal's cross, now he's laid in another man's tomb. <laughs> Do we see this? This is not the tomb that he deserved to inhabit, but it's the tomb he occupied for us, going where we were bound to go, down to death in order to take the keys of death in Hades that we might be set free from the fear and the dominion and the power of death and the one who holds the power of death, that is Satan. He did this for us. He went here for us, even unto death, church. And it's significant that he went even here of all places for us. There was no place Jesus wouldn't go for us. He went down even to death for his people. And listen, humanly speaking, he goes to what is the most desperate and hopeless extremity of our human experience, right? He squares off with death, the great equalizer, the ending of endings, the point of no return, the undefeated all-time champion of the world when facing up against any and every mortal man. Nobody beats death. Nobody evades death. Nobody gets out of death. It is the inevitable. It is what we're all heading toward. Jesus goes to face it for us in order for us to see that even death is not the end. That not even the power of death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That not even death can nullify his promises made to his people. That not even death can separate us from the presence of he who is life himself. He goes down to death that we might see 
All this is true on the other side. He dies, church, and is buried to identify with dead and buried and hopeless sinners coming face to face with the other utter hopelessness of death in order to offer us a true and living hope. That's why he's buried. He's buried to show us hope in the face of hopelessness. And Mark wants us to see this. He wants us to see the king dead and buried in another man's grave in order to give any and every man, woman, and child who would trust in him hope in the face of the grave. The grave that we've all faced in in, in different ways through those who have gone before us, through loved ones that we've lost, the grave that awaits all of us, (laughs) the grave that everyone has to square with. He's come to be laid in the grave that we might have hope in the face of the grave. And it's to this hope that we now turn. Jesus, you see, he allowed the grave to hold him on Friday and keep him all of that silent Saturday in order to show us something come Sunday. And this brings us to our second point. Let's take in this sight together. Point number two, the king who was dead and buried is alive. The king is alive. The king, church, who was crucified The king who was laid in a tomb and sealed over with a giant rock that no one could move is alive. The king who was dead and buried lives again. Death was not the end of his story. Mark didn't stop his gospel there and say, Jesus, man, he was a great hero. A legend, a martyr, someone who's really inspiring to me. No, his story didn't end in verse 47. It continues on the chapter 16, verse 1, because the king who was dead and buried and sealed in the grave did not meet the end of his story there. Death was not the end of his story, but it was the great setup, the preparation for a glorious and everlasting ending. The very story that Christ now shares with all of us who are his. The story he welcomed the women into that first Easter Sunday morning. So now let's accompany them, those women, those witnesses, to the tomb, step by step. Verses one through two. Of chapter 16. Mark writes that when the Sabbath was passed, it's now Saturday evening. Sabbath had just finished up. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, they go to the market, they buy spices so that they may go and anoint him early the next morning. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So the Sabbath passes. It's now Saturday evening. They go to buy spices and oils to anoint his body. And the next morning, they're ready. As soon as possible, 6 a.m., dawn is breaking to get out to that tomb. And listen, they, these women who watched their, their Lord, their friend, their, their, their master, who watched him die upon a hill, saw where he was laid, they now go to prepare for him a proper burial. They set out 6 a.m. on Sunday morning to anoint his body. And in this, as they're doing this, we see that they have accepted the finality of his death, right? You don't go buy spices and oils and all the things that they're buying if you think he's coming back. No, but instead, they've accepted the finality of his death. And they're in the process, as it were, these women, of making it officially official. Preparing the corpse in the tomb to be uh, in there for the long haul. And typically back in the day, they would place the body on a slab of stone for a year so that it could decompose. And then after that, they would take the bones and they put them in this bone box called an ossuary, put it on the shelf, and then the space would be open for the next person in the family to go be laid. So what they're doing here with these spices and these oils, they're going to prepare the body, not to like embalm it, you know, like the Egyptians do or make a mummy or anything like that so that it would be preserved, but they're going to put this stuff on it just so that it won't stink too bad. (laughs) That's the grim and gross reality of what they're doing. They don't expect, in other words, resurrection. They go to the tomb that morning with their hopes dashed. This is the end. Our Savior is, is, is apparently not a Savior. <laughs> they expect nothing but corruption and decay, and so they go to get the oils that would cover and mask a little bit and just kind of soften the blow of that corruption and decay. They don't expect resurrection. They expect decay. And so they go to prepare his body. And like Joseph earlier in the scene, like his disciples who have all fled, They must be undone at this moment. And again, we try to grab at uh, what it's got to be like for them to be in this position. The one that they followed, the one that they've they've left Galilee and come to Jerusalem with, the one that they've seen do wondrous things and miracles and say, 
that he was the Christ and Messiah is laid in the tomb. They must be undone. Their hopes must be shattered. Their world has fallen apart. The one they believe to be the Christ is dead and buried. Yet, in heartbroken love for him and devotion to him, they go so that their rabbi, their master, and their friend would have a, a proper burial. Yet, verse 3 tells us that even this act of devotion and love was not without its challenges to, to execute, right? Because as they were going along the way to the tomb that morning, they were having a conversation amongst themselves. They were wondering something. And they said this, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Kids? <laughs> Who is able to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? <laughs> they realize that they're kind of in a bind here. Who can do this? The tomb has been sealed shut by Joseph and his men. Here they are, a couple of women going, how are we going to get in there? Who will roll away the stone? Who can open what has been shut? Who can break the bars of death? Another must come to roll away the stone. But who will? Who can open up the grave? Mark is begging that question in the readers as we are following along with them to the tomb. But verse 4 says, but, but lo and behold, their problem was actually solved before they arrived. Because getting to the tomb and looking up at it in the early light of that morning, they saw the stone had been rolled back. They would take these massive stones and they would kind of slide them like, you know, you picture your, your closet door and the wheels on the bottom rolling into place. The stone would be rolled over and sealing shut. And they see it's already been moved. And Mark says for us, in case we were unclear on this, the stone was very large. <laughs> so this isn't just like something you could push it open real, really quick, like a sliding glass door. This stone has been set in place by many men and now it's been rolled back and there's nobody around. They have no idea what's gone on, no idea what's happened. The stone has been rolled back, and they must be at a total loss for words to explain what's just occurred. Someone has opened what they could not open. Someone has moved what was beyond their ability to move. The stone, which Mark says for us, was very large. And their minds and hearts must be racing here at this point. They're taken completely by surprise as they stand outside gaping up at this cave. And they're likely believing, because they didn't come expecting resurrection. We see that in the spices, in their preparation. They're likely believing that the grave has either been robbed or disturbed, um, and that someone has either made a mess of things and made off with Jesus' body, or who knows what else is going on in there. Someone else wanted to, you know, put a person in there. Who knows? <laughs> Find a, a free spot to go. So they're looking up at this. They're wondering what's happened. It's kind of like an insult to injury, salt on the wound situation. Their, their hearts are broken. Their world is shattered. They go to honor Jesus, and now they're fearful and confronted with the fact that his body may have been defiled, may have been stolen, may have been taken, and it just can't seem to get any worse for them. Their hope is shattered. The object of their love and devotion may not even be there anymore for them to honor. This is the end. <laughs> it's not going to get any worse than this. And so in dismayed confusion, they cautiously enter into the tomb. And just imagine this. They're wondering what's, what's going on. And what do they discover inside as they peer in and as their eyes adjust to the dark light of the cave? It says that in verse 5, Mark writes, And entering the tomb, they saw what? A young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Instead of finding a ransacked and defiled tomb or even the desecrated and defiled body of Jesus, they find an angelic being which we understand from his white robe, from their response of fear and alarm, from the other gospel accounts which fill out the scene for us, they find an angel sitting on the stone slab where the Lord had been laid. Their expectations, oh man, were exploded by now. Being confronted as they were by a divine messenger. And as is typical of people in the Bible when they see an angel, <laughs> what do they do? They respond in fear. They're afraid. All the times, angels, man, they just show up to people and they're not happy to see them. They're scared. There is a powerful, divine, angelic messenger sitting here and they must be wondering, what's, what's going on? Has he been taken? Was he under a curse? What's going to happen to us? Here we are now in the presence of one of God's messengers. And they're fearful. They're disturbed. And the word for alarm that's used here is the same word 
that's used to describe Christ's distress in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is distressed and his soul is sorrowful unto death. They are that level of distressed, concerned, confused. They have no expectation of anything good coming to them in this moment as they behold this messenger and look at the empty tomb in bewilderment. So what's going on? Well, contrary to their expectations, this messenger doesn't have a bad omen for them. Doesn't have judgment to come for them. Isn't uh, here because Christ was under a curse or anything like that after all. But instead, this messenger has good news for them. And church, good news for us. Good news for them and the greatest good news of all. He looks into the fearful and the panicked eyes of these women and he said to them, who were very alarmed, do not be alarmed. Do not be afraid. You, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he has risen. The one you seek and expected to be dead, who was crucified, is now the same one who is risen. He is not here in the place of the dead because he has been raised from the grave. Death could hold him no longer. Death could hold him no more. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See, you can see for yourself the place where they laid him. Do you see Jesus? Do you see him laying down? Do you see a corpse? No, you see the empty space that he's vacated. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so in this, in verses 6 through 7 here, we have what is the first complete proclamation of the gospel, right? From the pulpit of the empty tomb, the angel proclaims to them that the same one who was crucified, and again, remember, what, what did that mean? The same one who was crucified under God's curse, drinking the cup of God's wrath, representing those who really deserved it. The same one who was crucified for us now lives again. Jesus is, the angel says, the crucified and risen king. And this means good news for us. He's gone before you, he tells the women. The one you expected to find here, he's not even here. He's gone before you to Galilee. You know why? He's got work to do. He's risen and he's reigning. He goes before you to build his kingdom. The one who died under God's curse in our place and on our behalf is now alive again. And guess what he's doing? He's welcoming them and he's welcoming us into his kingdom, into his presence. He says, I go before you. Come find me in Galilee. I I want you to come. I invite you to come. Because of what I've done on the cross, you can come to the king who is now risen and reigning. The angel tells them that he's completed his work. The angel tells them that he is welcoming them. And not only them, these these frightened women in that moment, but also who? Who else is he welcoming? Look at the verse in verse 7. He says, but go and tell who? His disciples. What was the last time you heard about the disciples? What do they do? They fled every last one of them in, in chapter 14, verse 50. Not only that. Says, go tell his disciples, so you frightened women, you're welcome in. His disciples who abandoned him and, and fled and were faithless, they're welcome too. But guess what else? He says, and Mark is specific in recording this as the angel is specific and gracious in telling us this. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter. The women, the disciples, and even Peter. That denier, that traitor, that one who was you know, the counterpart in parallel character foil to Judas, who denied Christ, even Peter. He's welcome to all of you and all of us. Every sinner who's fallen short, every one of us who has been unfaithful, all of us who have been frightened and scared and timid and have fallen short of honoring King Jesus as we ought to. He says, you're welcome. I go before you. I'm building my kingdom and you get to live in it and live for it and give yourself to my cause in grace. He welcomes them in. He welcomes us in. He welcomes Peter in. And listen to this comment on on this text from our friend James Edwards. He says this, at this announcement from the angel regarding Christ's resurrection and his welcome. He says, this announcement, which is a fulfillment of 14 uh, verse 28, where Jesus says, hey, you're all going to fall away, but don't worry. I'll go before you. I'll be welcoming you after I've been raised. He says that this 
is a remarkable word of grace and encouragement. The flight of the disciples, even Peter's pitiful denial. Listen to this. Have not been the last word. Their failure, their sin, their falling short is not the last word. It is not given, Edwards continues, to human beings to speak the last word. The last word belongs to the risen Lord. And he says, I am going before you. The first act of Jesus' ministry was calling four fishermen into community with himself. And the first word of the resurrected Jesus is reconvening the same community of disciples. The announcement of the angel is, listen, not one of deserved blame, but a promise of gathering and going before them. Gathering those who don't deserve to be gathered and going before to build a kingdom. (laughs) Oh man, that we were on the wrong side of entering, but get to participate in now. It's a promise, not of judgment, not of blame, but of gathering and grace. This is the gospel preached that Easter Sunday morning. Edwards concludes, God completes his plans for the church despite human failure. He has the last word. He raises his son, and despite our failure to honor him, to follow him, to serve him, (laughs) we get to be his. We get to belong to him. We get to be a part of a church that will succeed over which the gates of hell will not prevail, not because of our faithfulness, not because of our ability, but because Jesus goes before us to build what can never be destroyed. The king who was crucified for our unfaithfulness, verse 7 tells us, faithfully welcomes us back. Jesus, just as he said he would in chapter 14, has now been raised and he goes before his disciples and is eager to regather them. In his resurrection, Everything that Jesus said about himself, back from chapter 14 in that one discreet prediction to the whole dang thing, <laughs> is confirmed. Jesus has said, hey, I will go before you after I've been raised, and here now, that's been shown to be true. And we take a moment and try to wrap our heads around and, and marvel just a little bit <laughs> at all his resurrection means for us. It means that these disciples have grace, <laughs> have a hope of regathering, that those who found themselves on the wrong side of the king uh, now have hope that they might be set right with him again. It confirms that what Jesus said in chapter 14 was true. And here's the, here's the idea. Along with that one prediction, hey, I'll be crucified, you'll flee, but don't worry, I'll be raised up to regather you. If that's true, on the basis of his resurrection, so is everything else, right, that Christ ever said about himself. Listen, if someone predicts their own death and resurrection and it happens, should you believe everything they'll ever say? <laughs> Absolutely. He said, I am God's son. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. And he's been raised from the dead. That's vindicated. That's confirmed. He said, I will give myself as what? A ransom for many. My death will pay your price. And if he's been raised from the dead, what does that tell us about our price? It's been paid. It's not been left unpaid. But if he says, I will pay your price in my death and has been raised from the dead, what does that mean about our sin? But that it is no more. He says, oh, I will be faithful to go before you, to gather you. And even death, church, even death couldn't stop Jesus from doing that. Couldn't stop Jesus from fulfilling that promise that he made to his disciples. Can death then, our own death, and the experience of death and the lingering specter of death that hangs over us in this world, can that stop any of God's promises? If he was faithful even through death, can anything separate us from God's goodness? from his promises, from his faithfulness. The resurrection confirms and vindicates everything Jesus ever said he was and everything that he has done. He is the crucified and risen Savior, the King who will never fail or forsake his people. And his resurrection confirms that for us. We get to live in the goodness of the faithfulness of a God who overcame even sin and death itself. Amen? This is the gospel of Easter Sunday morning. This is what the women are are taking in that day. And this is the gospel at this morning. If you never have received it before, you can receive today. You can, along with us, you can live in the same confidence in, in the Christ who his faithfulness oh, is always greater and always more sure in our unfaithfulness, is always overcoming, always going before us, always welcoming us in grace 
not according to what we could do or earn or deserve or merit, but according to his own finished work upon the cross. The same Savior who was crucified for sin welcomes you today, if you never have before, to trust in him to have taken away your sins, to have removed everything that separated you from life with God and to enter into a new life, a new story, a better story in his kingdom forever. He welcomes you today, the one who is faithful when we are faithless. He has been raised and he welcomes sinners everywhere to receive him, the king who will never let them down, to be set right, traitors though we are, with the king we've rebelled against. He welcomes you today to receive him. He lives and he reigns and he welcomes you. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that the women received. This is the gospel that we celebrate. And this is the gospel that they actually were tasked with sharing. And this brings us to our third and final point. The third and final point. We move from point number two, the king lives, to point number three. Because this is true, don't keep it to yourself. And this is what the angel, he, he told this to the women in verse number seven. He said to them, go and tell. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Go and take this good news and don't keep it to yourself, but share it. And with that, that's the command, that's the response that's required. We come to the final verse um, in the text here, in verse number eight. And it's the final verse of the oldest and the best manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. It's a verse which, however, brings our story to a bit of an abrupt ending. So look with me at verse 8. <laughs> Having heard the Gospel, how do the women respond? It says this. And they went out and told everybody like they, like they were told? <laughs> no. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The story ends in unexpected silence. The women who saw Jesus' death and burial and who were now the first witnesses to his resurrection do not bear witness to the crucified and risen king. And it's not that they were overcome by some kind of reverential awe. They were just scared, and they were silent, and they said, nothing. And something in you probably rises up and says, man, what an ending. We've come through the whole story of Mark only for it to end in this way. It can't end like this. The gospel of the crucified and risen one, it must go forth. It must go out. It must do its work in the world. That begins to well up within our hearts. And, and with that sentiment, an unknown but well-meaning scribe would agree. <laughs> so why do later uh, manuscripts of the gospel of Mark include that longer ending of verses 9 through 20 that we touched on in the beginning that you can read later on this week. Um, why is that there? Here's what I would submit to you. That some well-meaning scribe, as he was copying the text down by hand to be passed on to the churches all around, had the same feelings that we might be having. Thinking, the story can't end this way. <laughs> the, the gospel doesn't just stay here and do nothing, but it goes out to the ends of the earth. Which is why some later scribe said, you know what? This story needs a better ending, right? I'm going to take a little bit of, of John, a little bit of Matthew, a little bit of Luke, and even Acts, and I'm going to kind of pull it all together to fill out what was lacking in Mark's ending. Because people need to know the story can't end like this. People need to know that this good news is too good to keep to yourself, and the good news of that is that that news didn't stay kept back. It didn't stay hidden and reserved. It did go out. And the scribe says, i got to make sure people know that this is nothing that you can't keep to yourself. The church has not kept it to itself, and the church should never keep it to herself, this news of the gospel. And to this point, though, while the scribes might have been trying to correct what they think is lacking in Mark, I think that they actually agree and uh, help to make the same point that the gospel author is making here. Because I think verse 8 for us, ending as abruptly as it does, is meant to be... Uh, a challenge to the reader, if that makes sense. It's not, it's not meant to just leave us hanging. It's meant to spur us on. This unexpected ending is a challenge to the reader as Mark has brought us in verse 8 to the end of the story, and we've received now the greatest news imaginable, that Jesus has conquered sin and death. And listen, if we understand this message at all, even a little bit, <laughs> we understand that it cannot be kept to ourselves. It's too good. It's too wonderful. It's too urgent not to share. 
as believers in Jesus, as disciples of this crucified and risen Christ, we, along with the women in the scene, should understand that we have been commanded to go and tell the news, this news, to those who have not yet heard it, to those who need to hear it. That's the point we need to see here. Yet, like the women, and we can see ourselves in them, we can be fearful, can't we? We can be timid. We can be fighting against unbelief. And we can be prone to keep silent. The resurrection of Christ doesn't just magically get rid of all that. It doesn't just make it easy for us to, to step into this task into this challenge. This fear isn't just magically removed. Yet, the challenge is maintained for us. Mark is telling us to see ourselves in these women who beheld the empty tomb that first Easter morning. And like us, these women, they'd heard the gospel, but they'd not yet seen the risen Lord. Same boat that we're in right now. We've heard, we've believed, we, we love him, though we've not yet seen him, and we've been commissioned to go in faith that he is living and reigning and is part of what we're doing in that proclamation of the gospel, in what we do as we give our lives to build his kingdom alongside him. He's commissioned us to, to trust him. But So here's the deal, and here's the unexpected encouragement of verse 8, because it might seem like, uh-oh, story ends in failure, and initially it might, but though the women were initially silent and afraid, here's what we can't miss. Evidently, by virtue of the fact that this gospel was written, and we're all here in this room today, they didn't keep silent, right? If they would have kept silent, the show would have been over. But here we are, reading this book, celebrating this risen Christ. They didn't keep this news to themselves. But the king who went before them to build his kingdom, through the proclamation of the gospel, he met them in his grace, and he opened their mouths. He gave them what they were lacking, so that they might overcome their fear and their timidity and their unbelief. And share it. And he extends the same grace to us today. As he calls us to go and tell, he says, I go before you and it will work. I go before you and what I'm building cannot be destroyed. I go before you and I have plans for Santa Ana. I have plans for French Park. Go and tell. Even if you're feeling inadequate, even if you're feeling timid, even if you're feeling afraid of how you might be received, even if you struggle <laughs> with all kinds of fears that might hold you back, go and tell because I'm in this. Give yourself to living in the story that I've purchased for you and that I offer to you through my death and resurrection and give yourself to telling the story to your neighbors. Oh, Cross of Grace Church, would we respond to the gospel of Mark by going and telling our neighbors that Jesus died for sins and now lives to welcome sinners into his kingdom? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the ending of Mark, which secures for us a new beginning, that the one who was crucified for sin now lives so that we might live with him and for him and give our lives to the telling of his story. And Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that your story might resound in our church, that it might resound and go out to our neighbors, and that many more might step into the goodness of life with you, the new life, the eternal life, Oh, Lord, the most joyful life that's to be found in Christ with God. Lord, we ask that you'd be glorified in us as we seek to live in and live to tell your story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.